to get out your message outline that says crosswords on it. As you may have figured out by now, it's service is going to go over a little bit today. That's okay. Be patient, be kind. In the interest of time, I'm going to read the text as we go through it. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes the greatness of the gospel, the power of the cross, and the glory of Christ. We need to know the wisdom of your word for all the problems of our lives. Speak to us by the power of your spirit, that we might be people who listen to you, responding in faith and obedience. Thank you that 1 Corinthians is a love letter to unlovely people, pointing them and us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. Bring us to the cross. Bring us the grace of repentance. Soften our hard hearts. Have mercy upon us. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Many people today claim to be spiritual. They may not be religious, they may not go to church, they may not be Christians, but they claim to be spiritual. In fact, according to a USA Today survey, the majority of atheists consider themselves spiritual. By now, most of us who talk about religion are used to hearing people say that they're spiritual but not religious. And with that phrase generally comes the presumption that religion has to do with doctrine, dogma, rituals, whereas spirituality has to do with the heart and positive feelings and good experiences. The spiritual person has an experience of the divine or some other higher power. They don't subscribe to beliefs handed down by existing religious traditions, nor do they engage in the ritual life of any particular institution. Now, one writer said, having hung out with church folk for several decades, I have come to expect the words spiritual but not religious to be accompanied by air quotes and a tone of disdain. And lately, even some non-religious folk have begun to hate on the SBNR, which is their hip new acronym, spiritual but not religious. Some atheists have scorned them for, trying, for, for not having the courage to come out and admit they're really just atheists trying not to be offensive. Susan Jacoby writes in the New York Times, spiritual but not religious, once translated from the psychobabble, can mean just about anything. The speaker is an atheist who fears social disapproval or a fence-sitter who wants the benefits of faith, including hope of eternal life, without the obligation of actually having to practice a religion. <coughs> Lillian Daniels' book, When Spiritual But Not Religious, is not enough. 
will not disappoint those who are familiar with her writing and have come to enjoy her snarky jabs at the fence sitters who want it all, the SBNR. Now Lillian is what some would call a progressive evangelical, which is a nice way of saying I still believe, but I'm theologically liberal. So we probably wouldn't agree on a lot of theological or biblical issues. However, I find her hysterical. Kind of like a liberal female version of Shane Morris. Shane, I hope you're listening down there in Florida. <laughs> he was forewarned. One example of her snarky sense of humor, she writes, and I'm just going to read this to you. On airplanes, I dread the conversation with the person who finds out I'm a minister and wants to use the flight time to explain to me that he is spiritual but not religious. Such a person will always share this as if it is some kind of daring insight. Unique to him, bold in its rebellion against the religious status quo. And before you know it, he's telling me that he finds God in the sunset and in walks on the beach. She ridicules people who, she says, try to make up their own God and their own forms of worship, which is often some shallow combination of exercise and caffeine. Coffee shops as spiritual community, hikes as pilgrimages, and sunsets. Don't ever forget the sunsets. These people are always informing you they find God in the sunsets. Well, excuse me, as if people who go to church don't see God in a sunset. My take is any idiot can find God in a sunset. Thank you for sharing, spiritual but not religious sunset person. You are now comfortably in the middle of self-centered American culture, and the bland majority of people who find ancient religion dull, but themselves uniquely fascinating. Can I switch seats now and sit next to someone who's been shaped by a mighty cloud of witnesses? Can I spend my time talking to someone brave enough to encounter God in a real human community? Because when this flight gets choppy, that's who I want by my side, holding my hand, saying a prayer, and simply putting up with me just like we do at church. What is really remarkable is finding God in the context of broken people and a flawed community and a tradition bigger than you are with people who may not reflect God back to you in your own image. Part of the nature of religion so beat up on in our society is it delivers a message like sandpaper against the culture of narcissism. It is not all about you, and no, you cannot make it up. The beauty of a long tradition is that it is bigger than anything we can do by ourselves. Amen. I could read that every week. So, how do we respond to the spiritual but not religious crowd in a less snarky, more gracious, and more biblical way? Does what the SBNR people claim bear any resemblance to what we might call biblical spirituality? Don Whitney, author of a great book, it's a book day, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he says, perhaps for many, spirituality simply means spending time occasionally in personal reflection. For others, it means consciously trying to live by certain principles or attempting to be thoughtful on important issues like the environment or homelessness. But this is not biblical spirituality. He says, biblical spirituality transcends the human spirit, involves the pursuit of God and the things of God through Jesus Christ, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word of God. And that's what our text teaches us today about biblical spirituality. Turn to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to pick up where Dr. Lee left off with 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 6. Last week, we saw Paul defend the word of the cross as the wisdom of God and the power of God. The world's wisdom values power, glory, and success. And the gospel puts forward, as you heard, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The promised one has been punished. The king has been killed. This is foolishness and weakness to the world. But it's the wisdom and power of God. The world's wisdom is powerless against sin and death. But we can be saved from sin and death by the cross of Christ. And that's why it's the wisdom and power of God. We learn that we're saved by grace alone, not by our own efforts and not by the eloquence of any preacher. If I remember correctly, last week the phrase was, we're not all that impressive. Therefore, we've no reason to boast except in the Lord. We're saved by grace alone. The glory belongs to God alone. And this week, Paul continues the argument. He gives reasons why some people find the gospel foolish and reject it while others receive it and are saved. And he gives reasons why we have no cause to boast in our own salvation. Instead, 1 Corinthians points these relatively new Christians back to fundamental truths about God and the gospel of his son, Jesus. No matter how complex or how difficult the problem, Paul's answer is basic. It's knowing God revealed in Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross, risen from the dead by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Understanding and learning how to apply the gospel of God's grace for sinners and all the details of our lives. That's his response to every problem the Corinthians are dealing with. And so, as we go through this book, and we have about eight more months, uh, I want you to pray each week that God would take hold of our hearts and minds uh, by his word through this book of 1 Corinthians, begin his gospel work in our lives. So let's get started. Our text today begins 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 with things of the Spirit revealed. Things of the Spirit revealed. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. I think this passage could be summarized uh, in one sentence. And it's found in the first part of verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. In the previous passage... Uh, Paul demolished the false wisdom of the world. He said his speech and wisdom weren't implausible words of wisdom. That is the world's wisdom. And in this passage, Paul seeks to put genuine wisdom in its proper place. The rest of the passage essentially explains the sentence in verse 6. This will teach us what it means to have wisdom. What it means to be spiritual. What it means to be discerning. Let's start with wisdom. 
What do we learn about the wisdom Paul imparts? The gospel is revealed through the Spirit to the apostles. First of all, the wisdom that Paul imparts is the word of the cross or the gospel of Christ. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the wisdom that Paul is imparting is, in a nutshell, the gospel. And it's not simply an evangelistic message that gets you into the kingdom of God. It's not just like the door into the Christian house. It's the foundation of the house and the roof and the walls. The gospel informs all of biblical spirituality. When Paul calls the Corinthians to be unified in chapters 1 through 4, he does so on the basis of the cross of Christ. When he calls them to purify the church in chapter 5, he does so on the basis of the cross of Christ. When he calls them to suffer in chapter 6, he does so on the basis of the cross of Christ. When he calls them to honor God with their body, he does so on the basis of the cross of Christ. This is the wisdom of God. And it applies to the entire Christian life. Secondly, we see this wisdom is revealed to the apostles. Notice Paul says, verse 7. I just taught this past week in my preaching class that students should place what they're going to say. Tell people, look at this verse here with me. So I'm doing that now. Look at verse 7. It says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. First, the we in this verse is referring to the apostles. And second, there is a tension here. The gospel they declare is secret and hidden. But as verse 10 says, it's been revealed. We're told it was decreed before the ages. The gospel is secret, but now it's been revealed. What does that mean? Well, the gospel was concealed in the Old Testament. Technically, we would say it was veiled. But it's been revealed to the apostles who wrote the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was concealed through types and shadows, things like the Exodus, the Passover, the sacrificial system, the priests, the Davidic kings, and the covenants. These things all point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But nobody saw all this fully until God revealed these truths to the apostles who put them down on the pages of the New Testament. The gospel is not a mystery in that we can't understand it. It's a mystery in that it was hidden or concealed, but now it's been revealed. Verse 8 says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. The rulers of this age are those who embrace the wisdom of the world. They find the gospel foolishness because the wisdom of the ages is opposed to the gospel. It comes from man's attempt to get at the meaning of life. But the wisdom which was decreed before the ages comes from God via revelation. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It's the Spirit of God who revealed God's plan of salvation in Christ to the apostles. Now I'm going to diverge a little bit here and devote specific applications to the newly ordained minister among us. Not that it won't apply to all of you, but it will specifically apply to him. Frank, 
I have your name in bold print right here. There are three pastoral acts which are so basic and yet so important, they will determine the shape of your pastoral ministry. These acts are quiet. They don't call attention to themselves and they're easily set aside. And for the most part, nobody's going to tell you to do them. They are acts that involve paying attention and listening. Prayer is an act of paying attention to God and to be quiet before God. Knowing scripture is an act of paying attention to God's word and to be quiet so that you can listen to what he's saying through that word. And listening, or what Eugene Peterson calls spiritual direction, is an act of paying attention to what God is doing in the person who happens to be before you at any given moment. Which usually takes quiet, intentional, focused listening. Not only hearing what the person is saying, but what they're not saying. However, it is always God to whom we are paying attention. And not coincidentally, those three acts somewhat conform to the three points of our passage today. If the things of the Spirit are revealed, then how do we understand that which is revealed? In order to understand what's been revealed by the Holy Spirit, you'll need a healthy dose of wisdom. You need to pray for wisdom. And in order for the rest of us to understand what's been revealed by the Holy Spirit, you'll need to teach us to pray for wisdom. Since this wisdom comes from the Spirit of God, we have to ask, what does it mean to listen to the Spirit? It means, first and foremost, you need to be a person of prayer. Not to give God the list of what we want Him to do, but to come before Him, listening to His Spirit, so we can face Him on His terms, with His conditions. Realizing that prayer doesn't normally get us what we want, but what He wants. Try to remember to pray with a Bible open before you. Because it's largely through that combination that the secret and hidden wisdom of God is made known. Things which God has revealed to us through his spirit. And in order to listen to God's revelation, you must restore prayer in its proper context with God's word. Prayer is not something we think up to get God's attention or to enlist his favor. Prayer is answering God. Because the first word is always God's word. Which brings us to our next point, which is about God's word, or the things of the Spirit taught. The things of the Spirit taught. That's the second blank there in your outline. Starting partway through verse 10. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, some believe that the Bible is the word of God, which lays out the wisdom of God, God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. Others reject the Bible as the word of God, and they reject that plan of salvation. 
Those who are perishing don't accept the gospel as the word of God, but those who are being saved do accept the gospel of the word of God. Why? Because the gospel is revealed through the Spirit to the apostles, given to us in his word. We learn that throughout the Bible. A couple passages there in your outline, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. Some versions use the word inspired. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.21 teaches us, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is necessary to see God's plan of salvation because the word of God comes from the spirit of God. And the spirit of God knows the thoughts of God as verse 11 makes clear. We can only come to know God through the word and the spirit. But the word of God not only teaches us the way to be saved, it teaches those who are saved the way to live. We don't have to come up with a plan for biblical spirituality all on our own. It's been revealed through the spirit to the apostles and found in the pages of our Bibles. So one application uh, obviously, is that we should know and live by the word of God, the wisdom of God, and the gospel of God. But at some point, you have to ask the question, who is the spiritual? Look again at verse 13. It says, taught by the spirit, imparting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Well, do we need to be arrogant to put ourselves in that category? Who are the spiritual? What does that mean? The spiritual truths being spoken here are those revealed things spoken of in verses 6 through 12. Apostles don't use worldly wisdom in their preaching. They declare the gospel. Their words are taught by the Spirit. Their words are the Word of God. And so we have to humble ourselves both before the Word and the Spirit. We still need to study the Word. We also need to pray for understanding. Prayer and study are always combined. The intent of knowing Scripture is to listen to the God who reveals himself in his word. Frank, back to you. That means you will need to know the word. We expect that will result in you being able to preach and teach that word to us. And part of that preaching and teaching, you will teach us how to know and listen to that same word. What does it mean to listen to the word? Not just hear it or read it, but listen to it in such a way it draws a response of faith and obedience from within us, changing us, transforming us, so that we look, think, act, and speak a little bit more like Jesus. Our text tells us that the apostles teach these words to the spiritual. Today, pastors, teaching elders, you teach these words to the spiritual. The spiritual people Paul is referring to here are the same as the mature people he spoke of back in verse 6. He said, among the mature we impart wisdom. Now, verse 13, we impart spiritual truths to the spiritual. These two sentences are essentially saying the same thing. Who are the mature? They're the spiritual. Who are the spiritual? Whoever has the spirit of God is a spiritual person. And Paul makes this plain in the next section, verses 14 to 16, where we see the things of the spirit discerned the things of the spirit discerned he's going to compare the natural person 
with the spiritual person. Starting at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? It's actually a lot in those few verses. The natural person is simply the person without the spirit. He or she does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? Well, we're given two reasons here in the text. On the one hand, they won't accept the gospel because it's folly to them. You won't accept what you find to be foolish. And a crucified Messiah doesn't fit into the world's world's view. The world prefers polish and power. It wants to pull itself up by its bootstraps. It wants popularity and prestige. The cross is offensive. It says you can't save yourself. Only God can, and he did that by sending his son to a cross. That seems like failure, and failure seems like foolishness. So the natural person won't accept the gospel. But it's also true that you can't accept the gospel unless the Spirit enables you. The gospel is spiritually discerned. Therefore, the Spirit must enable people to receive it. However, just because they can't receive the gospel without the Spirit enabling them doesn't let them off the hook. They still don't want to receive the gospel. So their inability is a culpable inability. That simply means they're still responsible for their rejection of the gospel. They don't want to know God except on their own terms. Hence the uniquely American claim of being spiritual but not religious. They're happy to have a God they could more or less manipulate. They don't want a God whom they have to admit that they're sinners who don't deserve his mercy and their only hope is in his pardoning and transforming grace. That's the natural person. Now let's move from that person to the spiritual person, verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. This verse is often misunderstood. So again, we have to ask, what does it mean? The spiritual person judges all things. It means he not only sees the wisdom of the world, but he also has access to the wisdom of God. Through revelation, through the spirit, he knows the mind of the world and he knows the mind of Christ. And therefore judges all things. Those without the spirit don't know the mind of Christ. All they have is the wisdom of the world. And that's why Paul says the spiritual person is himself to be judged by no one. The natural person doesn't understand the gospel. So they can't make judgments on its wisdom or on those who believe. Also, the mind of Christ and the wisdom of God are found in the word of God. All these things are judged by the word of God. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to believe what we find in that word. What Paul is saying when he says the spiritual person is judged by no one is that the natural person doesn't understand the gospel, but the spiritual person does. The natural person doesn't have access to the secret and hidden wisdom of the crucified Lord of glory, verses 7 and 8. They don't know what God has prepared for those who love him, verse 9. They don't comprehend the thoughts of God, verse 11. 
They don't know the mind of Christ, verse 16. But the spiritual person does. So why is Paul arguing this point so strongly? He seems to be really trying to drive it home. Some would say beat it to death. And that brings us to an important question. How do spiritual people live? See, Paul wants the Corinthians to see that it's crazy for them to run after the ways of the world when they have access to the mind of Christ. But that's exactly what they're doing. They have access to the wisdom of God, but they're living according to the wisdom of the world. They're spiritual people, but they're acting like natural people. Frank, that's where you come in. None of the quiet acts laid before you today are public acts, which means no one knows for sure whether we're actually doing them. People listen to us pray, they listen to us preach and teach the scriptures. They notice when we're listening to them in conversation, but they never know if we're paying attention to God in any of this. The acts of listening to God, listening to God's word, and listening to God's people are what will determine over a long period of time if you're a faithful minister. Do people here want that? They'll be the first to tell you well, some of them, that their own interior lives are a muddle of shopping lists and good intentions, fantasized adultery and actual idolatry, episodes of heroic virtue, desires for holiness, mixed with greed and self-satisfaction. They hope to do better someday, maybe tomorrow, next week at the latest. And because of those muddled interiors, century after century, Christians have continued to take certain persons in their communities and set them apart and say, we want you to be responsible for saying and acting among us what we believe about God and about the kingdom and about the gospel. We believe the Holy Spirit is among us and dwells within us. We believe God's spirit continues to hover over the chaos of the world's evil and sin, shaping a new creation and new creatures. We believe that God is not merely a spectator, but a participant. We believe that everything, and especially everything that looks ruined, is material for, that God is using to make new life. We believe all of this, but we don't often see it. We see, like Ezekiel, dismembered skeletons bleached under an unrelenting Babylonian sun. We see bones that were once laughing children and loving adults and singing believers who sinned. We don't see the lappers or the lovers or the singers anymore. What we see are bones, dry bones, lots of bones. We see sin and judgment. That's what it looks like. And it looked that way to Ezekiel and it looks that way to us. But we believe something else. We believe in the coming together of these bones into connected people who sing and speak and laugh and love and work and believe and praise God. We believe that it happened the way Ezekiel said it happened, and we believe it still happens. We believe it happened in Israel, and it happens in the church. We believe we're part of the process as we sing our praises, listen to God's word, receive the grace and mercy of Christ in the sacraments. We believe that the most significant thing that happens is that we're no longer dismembered bodies, but
but we are remembered into the body of Christ. And we need help in keeping what we believe accurate and intact. We don't trust ourselves. Our emotions seduce us into unfaithfulness. We know we're on a difficult and dangerous life of faith, and there are strong influences intent on diluting and destroying us. Frank, we want you to help us. Be our pastor. Technically, you are a minister of word and sacrament in the middle of a dangerous life. A minister of word and sacrament comes to us in all different parts and stages of our lives. In our work and play with our children and our parents at birth and at death, celebration and sorrow. On those days when the morning breaks over us in glorious sunshine. And those days when it just feels like drizzle all day. This is not the only task of the life of faith. But it is your task. We can find someone else to do all the other tasks. This is yours, word and sacrament. We have ordained you to this ministry. We just heard your vows that you will stick to it. It's not a temporary assignment, but it's a way of life that we need lived out among us. We know you're on the same difficult life of faith in the same dangerous world that we are. We know your emotions are as unstable as ours are. We know that your mind can play the same tricks on you that they play on us. That's why we have ordained you and we have heard your vows. We know there's going to be days and weeks and months, maybe even years, when we won't feel like we're believing anything and we won't want to hear it from you. And we know there will be days and weeks and months, maybe even years, when you won't feel like saying it. That doesn't matter. Do it anyway. You are ordained to this ministry, vowed to do it. And there may be a time when we come to you as a congregation and demand that you tell us something other than what we're telling you right now. Promise us that you won't give in to what we demand. You're not the minister of our changing desires or our felt needs or our secular hopes for something better. With these vows of ordination, we are lashing you fast to the mask of word and sacrament so that you'll be able to resist and not respond to our siren voices. There are a lot of other things to be done in this sin-sick world in desperate need of flood buckets and hygiene kits. And we'll do some of them. But we don't know the basic terms with which we're working, the fundamental realities with which we're dealing, the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ. If we don't know that, we'll end up living futile fantasy lives. Your task is to keep telling us the story of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God through the Spirit, speaking biblical words of command and comfort, promise and fulfillment, demanding that we pay attention. And sometimes we won't hear you, but we will watch you. We'll watch you listening to God. We'll watch you listening to God's word. We'll watch you listening to God's people. These are the means by which you carry out your ministry. 
this commitment to God's word and his grace in your life and the lives of the people to whom you will preach and teach and give the sacraments in the name of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you're doing the Lord's Supper next Sunday. What connects these great realities of God and the great realities of salvation to this church in this place, in this season? That answer will never change. It is a trained attentiveness to listen to God in prayer, to listen to God in the scripture, to listen to God's people with spiritual discernment. This has not been tried and discarded because it didn't work, but tried and found difficult, shelved in favor of something that better fits into a busy pastor's schedule. These quiet acts are the means by which you will develop as a minister of word and sacrament. These are repetitive acts, often boring, somewhat tedious, difficult to measure, and hard to number. If you neglect them, you will be forced to turn to the fads, the gimmicks, the programs without end, all under the illusion of being practical. And people will like them and praise you for them, but their lives won't be changed by them. And we desperately need our lives changed. Remind us that all we have in Christ is by the Spirit of God. The gospel is revealed by the Spirit of God. The apostles and pastors teach and preach it by the Spirit of God. And it must be received by the Spirit of God. And for that to happen, you must start listening. Think about that, all of you, if you need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess we often fail to pay attention to you in prayer, not knowing how to listen to your Spirit. We confess we fail to pay attention to your Word, trading it for the wisdom of the world often without even thinking about it. Teach us by your spirit to listen to the word of God once again. And by it, may you do a powerful work in making us a spiritual people who know spiritual truths. And our God and Father, remind us over and over and over that we need to listen to that person who's right in front of us, one of your people, so that we might minister to them with spiritual discernment. And Lord, we pray for Frank Wong this day. Teach him these quiet acts. Use him to teach us these quiet acts. Make him a minister of word and sacrament among us. Use us as a church to hold him to these vows, we pray. And when we don't, forgive us. In these weeks and months ahead of us, work these things of the Spirit into our hearts and minds. Through 1 Corinthians, teach us who we are in Jesus Strengthen us as we seek to live these words out for your glory and your honor and your praise. And as we begin to be changed by the gospel, grant that we may live like people called to be saints, united in fellowship, discerning spiritual truths as spiritual people, all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Tradition in Presbyterian circles that the newly ordained minister would offer the benediction. So 
The Reverend Frank Wong, would you do that for us? We have heard a lot of words of charge to me and to you to listen to his word for his blessing. And it is fitting that we close our time listening to his word from uh, chapter 16 in Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll see you next week.